Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 197. Rich Kimball here with you, along with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Writers, lots of writers on the program this week. We love talking to writers here on downtown and some talented ones this time around. A little bit later on, Canadian writer Angie Abdu. And, uh, well, the ultimate hockey dad, Carl Subban, who's had three of his sons drafted by the National Hockey League. He's got a new book out written with Scott Colby called How We Did It, The Subban Plan for Success in Hockey, School, and Life. He's got an interesting story, and we'll hear all about that a little bit later on. But up first, a great friend of our show, Richard Chismar, who wrote the bestseller Chasing the Boogeyman. We talked with him about it uh, last year when that came out. Now he's teamed up once again with our friend Stephen King for the third book in the Gwendy trilogy called Gwendy's Final Task. It is a terrific read. Richard Chismar joining us right here on Downtown, the podcast. Richard, thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks for asking me. Man, this book was so good. And uh, space, politics, and horror. I-, I felt like you guys wrote this just for me. <laughs> we wrote it for ourselves, but uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I loved it. And I, I mentioned on social media the, the other day, I, I started Saturday morning and I just couldn't stop. I, I had to read the whole thing in one sitting. It was so good. Now, uh, for those who uh, have maybe not read the first two books in the trilogy yet, we, we don't have too many spoilers here, but um, this centers around Gwendy Peterson, who I guess it's not giving away too much that by the time this book begins, has uh, returned to politics and is now the junior senator from the state of Maine, and she's got, let's say, a very important mission. She does. She does. This is uh, this third book was was Steve's idea. He uh, came up with the idea of of Gwendy in space um, in, in an effort to, to once and for all get rid of the button box. And, and that's not a spoiler. And uh, I was just it was just my pleasure to, to kind of follow him down that trail. Well, as, as somebody who's been a big fan of, of space exploration since I was a little kid. Boy, the, the space lingo, uh, what's going on there is so good. And obviously, a whole lot of research must have gone into that aspect of it. Yeah, that was that was thanks to Robin Firth, who is uh, Steve's main uh, research uh, person. She uh, she did a ton of research for him on uh, regarding the Dark Tower series and is a really fine writer herself. And I remember early on talking to Steve about that. I said, uh, you know, because it was a little intimidating to me. I'm like, you know, I, my father was was huge into, uh, you know, astronomy. So I, I know a bit about the stars and the galaxies, that kind of thing. But not space travel or, or rocket ships. And uh, she took really good care of us. She sent us uh, copious notes, uh, links to uh, videos to watch. And, and then she read over the first and second pass and, and, and made us look smart. You know? <laughs> so we owe a lot of thanks to her. She, she, uh, we, we wrote an acknowledgement at the end, and Steve uh, wrote the part where it, essentially it says there's usually acknowledgments where you thank lots of people. This time we're just going to thank one. Well, uh, the book takes place a few years in the future, but, uh, well, we're still, we're still dealing with some of the things we battle with today, including uh, – Uh, politicians who may not have the best interests of the people at heart, and also uh, still dealing with the coronavirus in 
Wendy's future world? Yeah, we tried to, you know, we tried to keep things as realistic as possible um, to kind of, uh, you know, set up, that, well, you know, like Steve usually does. He writes about everyday people and everyday situations, and it's very realistic. And then when you introduce the uh, the not-so-realistic, hopefully, uh, the you know, the bad stuff, it, it just makes you uh, it, the impact that much bigger. So uh, that's kind of how we started. You know, COVID's still lurking in the in the background. It's not, fortunately, it's not in the foreground anymore, but it's there. And uh, politicians, they're, you know, they're kind of like cockroaches. They uh, they never go away. <laughs> uh, same thing apparently goes for opportunistic billionaires uh, like your character of Gareth Winston. Yes, yes. Again, we, you know, kind of drawing a parallel to, uh, to you know, some of the folks who are uh, prominent in, in, in the news, you know, these days. And I actually got a text from Steve at some point when, uh, you know, when they went to space and they, and they took some passengers and he's like, oh, they beat us to it. I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter. Everyone knows we, 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 you know, we wrote this book a year and a half ago. So, but, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. And, uh, you know, we got to revisit some, some very familiar, uh, locales to, to, you know, in the Stephen King universe, not only Castle Rock this time, but we went to Derry and, and that was for me, you know, I'm a huge Derry fan. You know, it is my all time favorite book. So being able to go there was, was, majorly a case of treading on sacred ground. Yeah, and, and Derry, I, I think it's safe to say, in many ways, is almost like a character in the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was the one during one of my turns writing pages uh, who, who introduced Derry into the, to the story, and it just felt very natural. I didn't try to force it because, like I said, it's one of my favorites, but I, I wouldn't do that. But I was still a little nervous when I sent that section back to Steve because I thought, yeah, you know, it's a little risky, and uh, I may get a note back saying, you know, Rich, you need to do your pages over again. But fortunately, he, he really liked it, and, and then he did what he always does, and that is he uh, he made it even better. <clears throat> We're talking with Richard Chismar. The new collaboration with Stephen King is Gwendy's final task. And uh, Gwendy, along with the challenge of getting into space and, and getting rid of the button box, also dealing with some pretty significant health issues. She is. And, again, that was part of the... Uh, that was part of the, uh, you know, foundation of the story that Steve came up with. I, I, uh, you know, I, I got some texts from him kind of out of the blue and, and the gist of what he said is, is what if, uh, you know, Wendy is dealing with some mental deterioration as far as her memory and her mental, you know, capabilities and, uh, the button box is back and stop it all off. She's going to space to get rid of it. And, uh, I, again, I was a little intimidated, but mainly I was just so excited because I could tell he was, and uh, I knew I knew I was in good hands. But uh, yeah, I mean, very unfamiliar territory for me as, as far as writing about those things. But um, that that's part of the challenge and part of the fun of it. Well, that was great, uh, and I I was so caught up in in her battle to sort of monitor her own deterioration, and then I'm thinking, yeah, I'm about the same age as Gwendy's character here. Geez. I, can I get my hands on some of those chocolates? Oh, everybody <laughs> chocolates. Yeah, it's funny. These days, no one even mentions the coins anymore. Every time I do an interview or a podcast or something, everyone talks about the chocolates, and it's not because they're hungry. So we're not alone. Uh, one of my favorite main words made its way into the book, and I don't know if it was you or Steve, but but thank you for including cod swallop in the book. <laughs> that was Steve. <laughs> <laughs> that was Steve. I, I think that came in one of my sections, and that was one of his uh, 
you know, additions, which are always wonderful to see. People always ask me, what's, what's the best part about working with, you know, Stephen King? And, and for me, you know, uh, besides the fact that he's kind of my literary hero and, and such a good friend, um, it's just getting to watch the, the different choices he makes, you know, and, and not only the big ones, but the small ones, when to add a word, when to snip a couple sent- words out of a sentence, that kind of thing. But uh, you can see where those Stephen King grace notes come in uh, firsthand. I get to see them first. Was it Steve who uh, slipped in an homage to one of my favorite and maybe one of his favorite Red Sox players? Uh, which player? Freddie Lynn. No, that was me. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> you know, we do that a lot. Like with the second book, you know, we he edited the second book for me, and uh, there was a, there was a scene in there where I had, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, it was a coin show, and, and a, a a rather shady character was wearing a, a Red Sox hat, and during his edit, he very cleverly changed that to an Orioles hat. So, yeah, we have some of that back and forth going on. Uh, Richard Ferris back in this one as well. He's uh, such a a great character and uh, adds so much to this. And his presence really lingers throughout the book. He does. I mean, he's almost uh, he's almost a ghostly character in this uh, in this third volume. And 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 when he returns, you know, again, I'm not giving anything away here. But when he returns in the final act, it's uh, you know, it's it's a surprisingly touching moment. And mm. um, it, uh, yeah, it's interesting. He, he is a uh, man of many faces, as we've learned. What was it like to revisit these characters again? Uh, obviously, you, you have an affection for them. You, you'd have to, uh, working that hard and bringing them to life and making them seem so real. Uh, it was it was fun and it was a pleasure and it was just, uh, you know, and, and it was a responsibility. You know, Gwendy, Steve and I both love the character and uh, she's taken on her own, you know, life certainly. And uh, we just felt like she'd, you know, in some cases you feel bad because, my goodness, good old Gwendy deserves better. But at the same time, um, you realize why, you know, Richard Ferris put her in charge of this button box is because of that pure heart of hers. And the fact that she's, you know, she's capable of doing something with that box that, that maybe none of the, the rest of us are. So, uh, yeah, it, it was like coming home again. And, uh, and, and, you know, she's she's a beloved character of ours, for sure. Well, and I would say, without giving anything away, it's a, it's a very appropriate ending to the trilogy uh, for both uh, for both the readers and for Gwendy. Yeah, it was an emotional ending. Um, I've had a few readers who read the arc in advance said that they, you know, shed some tears. And I remember, you know, Steve and I both worked on that ending and together. And, uh, uh, you know, there was definitely a text or an email from me saying, you know, man, my eyes are not dry right now. And, mm. uh, you know, we just both said, uh, hopefully readers will feel the same way. Uh, beyond the story, uh, which is wonderful, uh, what does it say about uh, where we are as a culture and, and what we value these days? Oh, you know, hopefully, it, hopefully it, that message is in there without being too heavy handed. But I think, you know, I, I, what the book talks about is, is unfortunately is, 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 I think in some subtle ways, it's just the fact that there is a gulf between, you know, between, uh, you know, American citizens right now, there is, you know, when we talk about the COVID, we, we break it down very simply into, you know, essentially the believers and the non-believers, depending on which channel, you know, you, you, you turn to for your news. And, uh, and then I, I think the bigger picture is just, you know, a, a one of responsibility and, and one of mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing despite the odds. And, uh, I think we need more of that. I think we need more Gwendy Peterson out there. Like they, like, you know, her campaign manager talks about. I would vote for her in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Um, 
Man, congratulations again. We talked to you, uh, I think, just before the publication uh, of Chasing the Boogeyman, which God, I loved. We've shared it with so many people here at the station and with listeners. But, boy, did that blow up, and with good reason. It was just an absolutely wonderful book. Thank you. Yeah, it, 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 honestly, you know, I know writers say it, and oftentimes they don't mean it, but it was a, such a nice surprise for me because, it, you know, I, I said all along, and I'm sure I said it on your show, you know, Chasing the Boogeyman was so personal. And it, it was, a, it was a, kind of a small campfire story for me. It was a love letter to my hometown, and uh, it just struck a chord with people. Uh, you know, I heard from a lot of people who said, that's, I've never read a serial killer novel with that much heart. And uh, it just kind of made me giggle because I'm like, yeah, you can take that two ways. But they, they were saying it in a warm, nostalgic way. And I think that's what, what hit people. And so the fact that it became a bestseller and an Amazon book of the year and all that other stuff was just, you know, one surprise after the other and, and just a great experience to go through. Well, congratulations on that. And congratulations on the third and final chapter of the Gwendy trilogy. Out officially today, Gwendy's final task by Richard Chismar and Stephen King. Uh, Rich, great to talk with you as always. We appreciate you uh, making time for us this afternoon. We wish you continued success and uh, a great finish to the story here for Gwendy. Uh, well, thank you so much, and anytime, and, and thanks for asking me back. Richard Chismar working with Stephen King on Gwendy's Final Task. And, of course, for us, living here in Maine, Carrie, what, what makes this book and then so many of the Stephen King books hit home so much more is that well, you recognize a lot of the places that they're talking about. And you know, we're essentially doing the show in Derry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, seeing, seeing those landmarks or places that you've been to show up in a book, it, yeah, it, it gives you an extra connection to it. That's for sure. Now, there's some people that tick us off here in Bangor, Maine. Mm. I will say none of them are as just downright evil as some of the people in Derry. So <laughs> that makes you look at your town a little bit differently. Derry's the darker version of Bangor. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Twisted a little bit. Right. Well, check out Gwendy's final task, Richard Chismar, Stephen King. We'll take a break. A word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, Carl Subban and Angie Abdu join us on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hello out there, we're on the air. It's hockey night tonight. Tension grows, the whistle blows, and the puck goes down the ice. Oh yeah, how about that? The goalie jumps and the Let's talk a little hockey up next here on Downtown, the podcast. On our radio show, we do a segment uh, every week called Sports Lit 101 with our friend Bruce Pratt. And uh, recently, uh, with Bruce, we welcomed in Canadian writer Angie Abdu and Carl Subban, author of How We Did It, The Subban Plan for Success in Hockey, School, and Life. Well, I'm going to throw it to Bruce because he'll, <laughs> he'll know how best to balance all of this. Well, what I, what I really enjoyed, I was looking back over your book, uh, today, Angie, because it's been a while since I read it, is how the two of you really identify 
so many of the issues that that we think about when we think about youth sports and how do we raise our kids and what do we trust with the coaches and this and that. You come from very different places and very different backgrounds, but I think there's something that knits you together. And I want to ask you both this, Carl. You loved cricket growing up. You, you made your own cricket bat. You 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 had a dad who played it. Angie, you're a hell of a swimmer. You're a coach. You've you've competed very high level. Your brother is a summer Olympian. You so you you grew up in the Canadian system, if you will. How much Carl, being a cricket fan, it was part of the your ability to become, as they often say, Canadian by becoming a hockey fan. <laughs> well, you know, um, sports uh, defined me while I was growing up in Jamaica. If you were to ask me at six or seven or eight or nine or 10 years of age, what was the one thing I was good at? I'm going to say it was sports. It was catching the ball, hitting the ball. And, and when I came to Canada, boy, boy, did it ever help me uh, to transition uh, into this new society. There's a, a sense, and Angie, you and I have spoken about this. It goes all the way back to Scott Young's Bill Spunska books that for immigrants, uh, they come to Canada and, and they become Canadian when they become a hockey player or they they love <laughs> hockey or whatever, right? It's been sort of that that kind of that myth. Now, you who have grown up in Canada know the importance it plays, but don't you think that that, that, that myth and that mythology have changed drastically in the last 20 or so years? That people are starting to question it, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I do think so. I mean, it, it depends where you look, though, right? Like, I think in academic literature, uh, there's a lot of scholars doing important work troubling some of the long-held practices in youth sport and some of the pressures on young athletes and some of the, you know, deciding by the kids' time the kids are nine whether or not they're good and pushing them into cheering. And, you know, academics are challenging a lot of this, but I don't know that it filters down to the grassroots level in hockey programs i think you still have the same parents really focused on their kids getting to the nhl and pushing really hard really young and some of the same really aggressive coaches so it depends where you look whether or not it has changed well i know carl you um had to make and pk had to make a decision that was really sort of remarkable to move from one team to another team in mississauga angie you paid a heavy price for being honest (laughs) about the abuse uh, the abusive nature, and I, and, and I don't want to overstate that, but of, of sort of toxic coaching in, in youth sports. Carl, can you tell us a little bit about what was really in in, the, in your mind when, when you're, you're, you have this very talented young son, he's, he, it's not a good situation where he is, and you move to a new one? Yeah, you know, as whether your child is, is in piano or swimming or playing hockey, um, you know, we, we want them to always uh, to feel good about themselves and to feel good about that this space they're in. And when they don't feel so great about the space they're in, it affects uh, the parents. And I know growing up in hockey, we have the 24-hour rule. <laughs> if, if something is on your mind, you know, let it stay there for 24 hours. But I remember that one time, you know, you know, it, it, it's in raising my fi- our five children. I'm I'm not doing it solo. I have Maria, and and, and there's PK's feelings influencing the decision. So um, I made that a, a decision to take him off the ice when I couldn't deal with that feeling anymore. And I 
You know, here's the funny thing. I regretted it. It, it, it gave me all the wrong attention. It, it wasn't the attention that I was seeking. But if you were to ask Maria, my wife Maria, or PK today, if I made the right decision, they're going to say, yes, Carl made the right decision. But you know what? I would say this to any parent who is in a situation. Obviously, if you feel your kid don't, is not safe, whether it's emotionally or physically, obviously there are things that you can do. But uh, looking back, I personally did not like the way I dealt with it. Carl, I have to ask you, you mentioned your wife, and in thinking about parenting, I was struck by something PK said in the book that uh, there were there was a good cop, bad cop dynamic uh, in the parenting, but he never know, knew who it would be, that sometimes sometimes mom would be the tough guy and sometimes you would be the tough guy. Was that a strategy yeah. on your parts? <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're right about that. You know, parents, we, we play so many roles, and... Um, but, you know, Maria was the voice of reason. And, you know, I'm, I really was the hockey dad. I'm still a hockey dad. And, you know, I remember what Maria said to me one time. And that's why it really takes a, a team uh, to support our, our young people to reach their destinations. I remember what she said to me one time, and I've never forgotten it. And I think I, 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 I became a better hockey dad because of it. She said, Carl, the dad that the boys need the most, or that they need the most, is Carl the dad, not Carl the hockey dad. So, so you know, yeah. So Maria, uh, she was also a voice of reason and control, and and uh, it took both us of us working together um, to overcome some of the challenges that we were facing, especially to make sure our, our young people, our boys, continued on the path that they were on. Now, Angie, you had a, a situation, and, and I had a little bit of this in my life where. I had one child that was into one sport and one that was into another. My younger son was in, into ski racing, and you know because you live in Fernie what that requires on a regular basis. Um, and my other son was was playing basketball. That there is that terrible feeling parents get caught in all the time is, if I got a kid that can make the travel team, I have to invest all my effort in that. And 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 you you ask Ollie time and time again whether he wanted to continue to play hockey. You were you were diligent in that way, but you had to be part of that world for a while. What are the positives you can take out of that? And I mean, I know what the negatives are, but I want you to talk about those too. But, mm -hmm. but what what from that experience between you and Ollie, what was the most positive thing in the end? That's a great question because there is a tendency to focus on the negative in these conversations. And then I forget to mention that I love sport. I love it so much. And there are so many great life lessons to be learned in sport. And I'm experiencing that all, all over again right now as a swim coach with both of my kids on the team. And when I think back to those years of hockey and what I learned, I mean, I could very easily tell you what I learned just this weekend coaching my kids at a swim meet in Lethbridge. And there's dozens of lessons. But thinking back to that time, I mean, Ollie and I are incredibly close because we drove all over to all those tournaments together, spent all those weekends in hotel rooms, and, you know, I was there when he lost a game, and I was there when he won a game, and I was there when he was arguing with his teammates, or when he was all, I was there for all of it. So we have this huge shared experience that is so full of energy and big emotions and great life lessons, and, I mean, I, I wouldn't give that back for anything. That was wonderful. And I'm there to help them. Like, what do you do when things don't go your way, but you still have four games left that weekend? And what do you do when you're mad because the coach isn't playing and you're one of your teammates made fun of the way you're 
your shoot a shot is or something, but you have to, you know, participate with these people for the rest of the weekend. And so all those are life lessons about resiliency and about getting along with people and about finding strength and uncomfortable positions. And I mean, it's made him who he is, but yeah, most of all, it just, it, we're so close because of sharing those experiences. We're talking with Angie Abdu and Carl Subban here on downtown. Uh, Carl, I'm curious, being an educator, did that make you a different type of hockey dad? Um, it helped <laughs> because <laughs> I had to behave myself in the arenas because uh, I'm from the principal, <laughs> you know what I mean? But one thing I wanted to add to that question you asked to Angie, you know, and I, I learned a very important lesson, and that I had to learn uh, when to get out of their way, when to get out of the coach's way, when to get out of my son's way, because sometimes what I was doing, I was in the way of them progressing. And if I didn't learn, I, didn't, I really don't believe that they would have progressed um, as, 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 um, as far as they did. Well, I would also ask that question from the other direction. Rich, Rich is an educator. You know, I am, I am as well. What do you find that you, for your involvement in sports, helps you be a better teacher or a better administrator? Uh, Carl, you were in some pretty rough neighborhoods in, in, in Toronto. Uh, and you have to do a lot of stuff online, which is not an easy way to teach. What things from sports did you take that helped you be successful in those realms? Let's start with Angie and then we'll ask Carl. That you take the athlete or the student where they're at, right? There's no sense trying to get them. You have to start where they're at and give them how to get to the next level. You don't suddenly say, why don't you go from a 26.50 free if there's something not 38.50 free? You're like, how do I get them to a 37.5? And then how do I get, you know, how do I keep getting a little bit faster at a time? And it's like that with students. I don't take uh, essays submitted and start giving them advice as if they're going to publish when really they're just trying to figure out how to be coherent. So meet them where they're at and just nudge them forward gently with a lot of note, uh, positive uh, feedback about what they're doing well and, uh, and treat each person like a uh, person, right? Like I really have noticed that coaching swimming this year, every single athlete is on the team is different. They have different challenges, whether it's anxiety or lack of confidence or in a difficulty focusing and they have different reasons for being there, whether it's for their friends or because they have really lofty goals or because they know they need to exercise. And so to meet them where they're at and who they are and approach every single athlete differently. And I've learned through sport to do that with my students as well. And Carl, what would you say to that? Well, you know, the one thing I, I sort of seen both arenas, the, the, the hockey arena, the school arena is that, you know, I see, potential in the classroom and I see a lot of potential in the ice. Uh, that's the first thing. And, and, and then the other piece is, you know, uh, a, a, a young child learning to skate. We know that it, you just don't put your skate on, go on the ice and you're skating like an NHLer or figure skating like an Olympian. It takes time. Um, you know, even teaching my, my sons and daughters too, how to skate. Uh, it took time, and there is this period of fear and, and where they're very anxious. And it's the same thing in school, uh, whether it's math, you're teaching math, or, or it's, 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 it's you're teaching them reading or writing. It takes time. And, 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 and so, so I know that 
I did not learn to skate overnight. Well, I'm still learning to skate. But P.K. Subban did not become an, an NHL skater overnight. He became one over time. And so in school, um, I mean, I use these stories, these lessons, uh, to help my educators, to help all the staff in my school in terms of working with young people, just reminding them that they do have potential. Uh, when we see them through that lens, we're telling them they can learn and grow and develop. And no one becomes really good at something overnight. It's over time. And so those are some of the lessons I took from the hockey rink to the classroom. The four T's, right? Can you? I thought of something. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Go I ahead, Angie. Something else that is sort of, I thought of something else that is sort of like Carl's 24-hour rule, but from the perspective of the athlete and the student, is that um, in any case where things haven't gone as they like, they need to work through the emotions first and then mm-hmm. deal with next steps. So if swimmers come back to me after a race and they're ex- upset about how it went and they're crying, I realize you have to tell them, like, go have your cry and then come back and talk about <laughs> what went right, what went wrong, and what we do next time. And it's the same when I hand back an essay to students. If they don't like what happened, I say, just sit with those comments for a little while, work through your emotions, and when you're feeling less emotional, come back and talk to me, and I will clarify any points you want, and we can talk about how to do better next time. And again, that's something that causes from athletics to academics. Absolutely. A little bit of time is a good thing, a useful thing when emotions are involved. Carl, you mentioned time. That's one of your four T's. Can you talk about the other three? Yes, you know, whether uh, you want to be a better hockey player or a better student, and hopefully whatever sport you love, and, and we want all of our young people to, to do their best in school and to be their best, I find that uh, we need to give them tools. And one a set of tools I've given them, I call it the four T's. Time, task, training, and team. You make time to do your school tasks. You make time to do your hockey tasks, like skating and stick handling and, and shooting pucks and, and so on. And in school, the tasks are your assignments. Right? So you make time to do your tasks. The third T is training. No one gets better overnight. I, I, I was talking about that earlier, uh, that it takes practice. You know? and, and the fourth T is team. It's, it becomes very difficult. To fulfill your potential if you're not working to be a better person or to be the best person that you can be. It, it becomes very challenging for me to be the best principal that I'm capable of being if, if, if the students don't want to work with me, if my staff don't want to work with me, and if my parents don't want to work with me. And so I love the 40s, whether uh, you want to shine in the hockey arena and you should also want to shine in the classroom, Please uh, bring the 4T uh, to, to, to your focus and give it your attention and don't leave home without it. I really have enjoyed talking to you. I want to one, one quick question by both of you, and I hope I can see you both in Victoria. I hope Angie can convince Carly she should become a member of the Sports Literature Association. Mm-hmm. When, you look, when you look at the future of youth sports, are you more optimistic of the Canadian model? or less optimistic? I feel like things are improving. I think there's a really great emphasis on multi-sport. The kids should do a variety of sports until they get older and uh, put off specializing as long as they can. And I think the message has really gotten out about the value of learning all the kind of different athleticisms, whether it's throwing or catching or tumbling or you know strength balance, rather than just trying to get really good at one sport. And I think that message is getting out there. 
And I think coaches will now, there's a really um, vigorous training program that all coaches have to go through before they're even allowed to work with children. So they're aware of safe sport and ethical sport and the multi-sport model. So I do, I am optimistic. Yes. How about you, Carl? Uh, Yeah, I'm very, very optimistic. Um, You know, Angie mentioned a number of things there, which I agree with wholeheartedly. We know uh, what sports means to young people. Today, we're spending so much time focusing on their well-being. Well, sports is one way to help to address that. Uh, The safety of sports. You know what? We've learned so much more how to coach our children, how to teach them, how to parent in them. And that education is not going to stop. Um, and it's there. I'm here working in the GTHL, the, the largest minor hockey league in the world. And, and you know, you could see the in-service on all the things that the league is doing to educate the coaches, to educate all the hockey staff, and also to educate the players and the parents. So I'm very, very optimistic. I can't imagine living in a world when our young people don't have the opportunity Well, this has been great talking to the both of you. I've gone through the safe sport training. I agree with you. It's a very important thing. I hope we can talk to each of you again sometime because there's more to to talk about. But thanks so much for joining us today, and best of luck to both of you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bruce. Good to hear your voice, Carl. Nice to hear from you, too, my good friend. Carl Subban, Angie Abdu, and Bruce Pratt with us here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to them. Thanks to author Richard Chismar as well, and thanks to you for joining us this week on the program. We remind you that Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll catch you next time right here on Downtown.